live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, season 14. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal Season 14, Episode 2. First and foremost, a huge thank you to everyone who reached out following last week's debut episode, An Education of Darkness. I've said many a time that this is your show and therefore if you do have any feedback or comments, feel free to send them in to contact at thedarkparanormal.com. And that's also the address if you have an experience that you want to share with the show. Like I said last week, we always have a few floating episodes. And what I mean by that is we have some potential spaces on each season. I basically place a holding episode in those spaces in case something a little bit more bone-chilling comes through the mailbox. And that's something we've done each and every season since we began, because we tend, for some reason, to get some absolutely amazing experiences through during the season. And so, if that's you, if you've been waiting for that sign to sit down and type out your experience, then this is it. Again, the only thing that we ask is that it's at least six sides of A4 paper, or Word document. We found that length to be more or less perfect to dedicate an entire episode to your experience. Well, what do we have in store for today? Well, you may recall last season we had an outstanding email sent in to us by a psychotherapist. And that email has inspired somebody of the same field to reach out with their experience. And the one thing I find wonderful about these experiences is they come directly from people who deal with people's psychological and emotional states. Therefore, their first port of call whenever something happens is not to jump to the paranormal. Instead, they do their utmost to try and find the most rational answer. But, as in today's case, what happens when that simply does not exist. But before we take a dive into today's true paranormal experience, we of course need to thank our wonderful team over at Patreon. When you sign up to our Patreon, not only do you receive every episode that we release, both ad-free and before everyone else, but you can also gain exclusive access to our Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. Dark Bites is released every Sunday of the year without fail, even on the downtime between seasons, meaning you never miss your paranormal fix. And there are currently well over 50 hours worth of Patreon-only content for you to go and binge. We've built our wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd love to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. Just like the following wonderful new team members have. 
David Turner, Vonk, Christy Miller, Gertie the Goat, Joanna Emmett, Nicky Maguire, Eva Zagara, Jenna Eason, Maisie McLean Colton, Andrea Schofield, Melissa Tim Henson, David Garcia, Johnny Mayer, Mena El Tarki, Samantha Paget, Claire Floyd, Alan Junius II, Amelia Blair, Jeanette Patterson, Lauren Arps, Tracy Intihar, Alicia, Renita Thackeray, Louise Fullylove, Anna Lee Hardin, Sian, Nicky Maguire, Jill White, Christy Miller, Chandler, Tammy and Beth Ganzel. Thank you so much for the support, guys. It truly means the world. And if you'd like early ad-free access to every episode we release and to gain access to over 50 hours of Patreon-only content and, most importantly, join our wonderful paranormal community, simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. But right now, it's time to lower those lights. Make yourself comfortable and, of course, leave your disbelief at the door as we hear all about what still remains. I've been listening to The Dark Paranormal for a good while now. I was inspired to write in after the recent Dark Paranormal episode from The Retired Therapist. This is because... I'd always assumed my own mixed bag of different experiences across my life wouldn't be that interesting, in the grand scheme of things, and also a little element of trepidation of being identified from what I send in, as I can't imagine there's too many people with a similar personal background to me to have any plausible deniability. Because, like the dark paranormal submitter... I, too, work as a psychotherapist. This also involves the experiences of people around me, so for those reasons, I'd like to remain anonymous. You can refer to me as John, and I'm also not going to name any specific locations. I've experienced quite a few things over my life. Things that happened in the house where I grew up, and elsewhere. I now live in a very small village in Wales, having spent most of my upbringing in England. I know with all these real experiences people can post online or submit to shows, there is always an element of credulity, which we have to hold, due to the anecdotal nature of what we're being told, the fallibility of memory, and the fact that some people just want to make up or dial up experiences for fake internet points. Of course, I say that now, and it immediately sounds like I'm trying to hand wave. Is it a double bluff? You may well ask. But really, I just want to try and explain where I am on the believer-slash-skeptic continuum. So, to try and detail that, I will say that whilst I was at university for my undergrad degree, I was also a member of a paranormal research society. We'd done different events, such as ghost hunts at supposedly haunted locations in Wales. I've always found the paranormal interesting, partly because of my experiences that I had growing up which I'll go into shortly. But the attitude I always took to these things is that whilst I would love these things to be true, and I was open-minded, 
I was also very staunchly sceptical. Always trying to find alternative reasons for things that happened to try and ensure that what we were left with was evidence beyond any reasonable doubt. All this is to say, in the words of Fox Mulder, I want to believe. And while that's true, I don't want to be rushed into a frenzy over a simple small thing. Right, to my experiences... So, growing up, I lived with my parents and younger sister. A few days before my fourth birthday, we moved into a house that my parents still live in, within a large village in southern England. I do remember that moving in day. All the large boxes that our things were packed up in, the removal company coming to meet us at the house... I recall one of the very first things that happened was the removal man setting up the TV in the lounge so that my sister and I would be entertained. What we were not expecting to find on moving into a 1930s semi-detached house in a quiet home county's village was blood on the walls of the master bedroom. Not Hollywood horror movie gallons, but noticeable, dark, rust-red staining on the wallpaper on some of the walls. I say we. My mum only told me about this when we were much older. I've never been someone who needed a lot of sleep, and that used to annoy my parents quite a lot, I'd be sent to bed at bedtime and just not feel tired. And so I'd go to bed and I'd just read, until I did finally feel tired enough to go to sleep. To begin with, when my parents might come upstairs to use the bathroom in the evening, they'd see my light on and tell me to go to sleep. I'd complain I wasn't tired yet, but they would insist. Eventually, I got in the habit of pretending to be asleep, or switching the light off if they did try and catch me out. But being a young child, I don't think my acting skills were Academy Award winning, and they saw right through them, and just said that they'd trust me to know when I needed to sleep. And as long as I was up for school on time, they weren't going to interrupt me. All this means that, from the time of being in the latter years of primary school, I was often the last one of the family left awake in the house by some far distance. Many nights I would be laying in bed reading a book and I'd hear my parents go off to bed. And then a little while later, whilst I was still reading or settling off to sleep, I would often hear one of two things. The first, odd, but not too unsettling one, was that I would be able to hear things happening in the kitchen and dining room downstairs. The unmistakable sound of a dining chair being scraped on the hard floor. Cupboards opening and closing. And once or twice... I could have sworn I even heard the whir of the microwave 
Once I thought it sounded almost like a party was happening. There was so much movement, but I couldn't hear any voices. My parents tried to rationalise this, saying it was sounds coming from the neighbour's house. However, I knew this couldn't be the case. Firstly, I was on the other side of the house, from the adjoining neighbours, and there is a difference between hearing movement from a distance away and hearing something in a room beneath you. The kitchen cupboards were directly under where my bed was in that house. Secondly, and most telling for me, was that we were friendly with our neighbours and we'd been in their house. So that scraping furniture sound I knew wasn't from their house as the room where their dining furniture was, unlike ours, was carpeted. But the more unsettling regular experience I would hear was when I was reading at night, and every now and again, the sound of someone walking up and down the stairs in heavy boots, continuously and repeatedly, up and down the stairs for anything up to ten minutes. The steps had a slow but determined and regular sound to them. I was never brave enough to get up out of bed and swing my bedroom door open. My room was the one right at the top of the stairs in that house, so I would have had an instant view of anything that was, or indeed wasn't, there. So instead... I just used to sit and listen to them in bed, waiting for them to stop, so I could eventually feel safe enough to go to sleep. Being that I was in bed at the time, there's a part of me that would happily write this off as some hypnagogic hallucination. There were times I recall laying in bed and hearing my dad call my name. Very easy to explain. However, I was sat bolt upright, the lights on, a book in my hands, and I was listening to the name being repeated for ten minutes. Now, having some knowledge on the subject, that doesn't really tie in with a hypnagogic experience. My dad tried to explain the footsteps away by saying it was the sound of someone walking down our street, echoing in the area between the houses, which I would have took as an explanation, but for the fact they carried on so long and got repeatedly closer and further away. Plus, the houses were far enough apart to have both houses' driveways between them. One of the things that always frustrates me about some staunch sceptics, like my dad, is how much assumption goes into their explanation. But because it doesn't include ghost, they feel theirs is superior, even if it doesn't really work or takes too much what-if to make a really airtight explanation. 
let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank accounts. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. During my childhood and early teen years, I had a cabin bed. You know the ones. Raised up with a pull-out desk, a cupboard, and small crawl space underneath. Like a bunk bed for people who were never going to have a sleepover. My bedroom was an odd shape, due to my built-in wardrobe and my parents' ensuite, making the floor plan of my room essentially two offset rectangles. My bed was in the end furthest from the bedroom door, and I would sleep, originally, with my head towards the back end of the room and my feet towards the door. Up until one night, that is. When I was drifting off to sleep and I felt something hit the pillow next to my head fairly hard. I had shelves on the wall just overhead this end of the bed. So I turned my light on and found that a Jeremy Fisher stuffed toy had evidently fallen off the shelf, knocked onto the bed and fallen to the floor. I was surprised it made such an impact. But nevertheless... I dutifully replaced it in its rightful place, and I returned to bed. Almost immediately, I felt something smack on the pillow again. Thinking I clearly hadn't put the toy back well enough, I flicked the light back on to find... nothing. Nothing on the pillow, nothing on the floor, and all the toys where they'd been left. I just grabbed my pillow and moved it to where my feet had previously been. I went to sleep with my knees pulled up, and from that day I slept facing that shelf. Several years later, I recall what was probably the biggest experience for me, though experience doesn't quite cut it. Is there a word for Something that happened that I don't have a sufficient explanation for? Because all I really know is that one night in the very early morning, I awoke 
hanging out over the end of my bed. You'll recall me saying that my room was two offset rectangles? Well, what was now the head end of my cabin bed hung past the edge of the built-in wardrobe by maybe a foot. And I woke up overhanging that foot-wide part of the head of the bed. The wooden frame of the bed pressed into my waist and both of my arms stretched out in front of me. I woke in that position. I had maybe a confused second or so in the air before tumbling headfirst out of bed in the pitch dark. Lying confused on the floor now, in pain and not really sure which way was what from the tumble in the pitch black room, I wasn't really sure what to do with myself. What possessed me to eventually decide to just clamber back to bed, I'm not too sure. But I did get a little bit more sleep before discovering in the light of day that my sore back was owed to a huge carpet burn and bruising from the fall. That made school the next day a slightly more painful experience than usual. But what I will never be able to explain is how I managed to get in that position I was in. Like, sure, people may roll or fall out of bed, but how on earth was I, whilst asleep, able to extend my body out of the bed, rigid, arms out in front of me? until I had the wooden frame at my waist. If not for the fact I was alone in the room and have no memory of feeling anything, it would have looked to a third party like I was being pulled from the bed by my wrists. But I can't definitively say that's what happened. I don't remember a feeling of being gripped on my arms or the sensation of being dragged. I just woke up hanging out of bed, but with my arms straight out forward. Interestingly, when we were younger, neither me nor my sister liked the landing during the late evening or at night. If we went to the loo in the night, as soon as the bathroom light was out, we'd both run back to our room as swiftly as possible and shut the doors. I remember not wanting to look back on the landing in case something was there. But it never felt as one would expect. Not like it was running up the stairs or chasing you down the landing. No, it felt like it was on the ceiling above the bathroom door. Whatever it was, I never looked. It was just a feeling of, I don't know, dread. I appreciate that's not really evidence of anything, but it was always funny that both of us would try and get back from that toilet. For example, if we were watching a film together as quickly as possible. 
We'd even start a conversation from the stairs to try and feel safer. But it wasn't until much later we even discussed that we were both having the same feeling. Something else that we shared in our younger years in this house was prophetic dreams. I say shared, but she always had more of them than me. Only one really sticks with me to this day. I had a dream one night in which I was on a train, only I wasn't me. I was getting a first-hand view through someone else's eyes. In the dream, I recall feeling uneasy, and when the train reached my stop, I got up, got off the train, and began walking through the dark, heading home. The uneasy feeling intensified, and when I was walking through a narrow lane, I suddenly heard footsteps thundering up behind me. I spun around to see a man running at me, with jaw-length dark hair, wearing an incongruously bright shirt, sporting what could only be described as an unsettling grin. It was at that point the dream ended, and it was only a few days later, whilst listening to the news on the radio, that I heard about an attack not far from the train station, which had taken place the night after my dream, and the police were asking for information about a man matching the exact description of the man I'd seen in my dream. My sister struggled with them much more than me, though. One notable one was the week before an elderly couple were hit by a lorry when crossing the road outside the theatre. She'd seen the whole event happen in a dream, and then a week later, it happened for real exactly as she'd seen it. I know she used to get them fairly often, and being relatively young, she didn't like talking about it. You see, being young, she wasn't sure whether she was causing the things to happen by having these dreams. Apparently, sensitivity, or whatever we want to call it, is something that runs in my mum's side of the family. She's talked to my sister about her experiences more than I. It's something I only found out about when I was taking part in the Paranormal Research Society at university and going on our ghost trips. That's when we had lots of conversations because she thought I was being braver at embracing it than she ever would have been. And it was only really at this point that the many different experiences I've talked about in this email were actually shared between us for discussion. In our conversations, I went into detail about the boots walking up and down the stairs, and she let me know about the blood on the walls when we moved in. It was at this time that my mum shared with me that one evening she was lying in bed and heard an elderly lady's voice call, Hello? 
from the other end of her room. My mum's response was to hide under the covers and mutter, Go away! My mum also just sometimes gets inklings about things. For example, before going on holiday once, she insisted my dad turned off the water at the stopcock for the house. Not something they'd ever done before, but she was adamant they should. When we returned from holiday, it turns out there was a leak, and it sprung from a pipe when we turned the water back on. If the water had not been turned off, the house would have been ruined. You can only imagine the catastrophic water damage that would have been caused with a fortnight's worth of flooding. It was also during these conversations in later life that my mum and I both found out, to our combined shock, that we'd both experienced being pushed down the stairs. One morning before school, I was coming down to get my shoes on and head into school. I was only on the first step, coming down from the top, when suddenly I felt pressure on my shoulder, trying to unsteady me. I grabbed the banister to stay on my feet, but they went from under me. I slid down the rest of the stairs, knocking one of the banister posts out with my knee on the way. Little to say my dad was not very happy about having to fix that. But given his staunch unbeliever stance, I didn't think I was pushed by something invisible was a worthwhile argument. Especially at 7am on a weekday morning, so I just let it go. My mum herself says that she too was pushed down the stairs. We all knew she fell down the stairs, as she unfortunately fractured her coccyx in the fall, and so she had trouble sitting comfortably for long periods whilst it was healing. She was also right at the top of the stairs when she says that she suddenly felt like she was pushed. Landing on her bum, she slid down the remaining stairs. I keep scrolling back and forth over what I've already written, making sure things fit together and the chronology's correct, and if there's more I need or want to say. I started writing out what I thought would only be a few anecdotes, but it's already expanded beyond what I thought partly because doing so has caused me to remember even more of what happened in that house. I'm now intrigued what will happen when I go back there this Christmas. As I've mentioned a few times now, I was in a society at university in which we'd done some ghost hunts. Being that we were all students with an interest in the paranormal, our weekly meetings were mostly in the pub with some conversations around divination, tarot and the like, we did some bigger things, looking at dowsing, and more experimental things, trying to look at differing abilities, and whether or not they could be fostered. I took part in it all, but I didn't really worry too hard about how it went 
I was just game for a laugh more than anything. But two events from that really stick out in my mind. One was dowsing, and the other was Zena mind-reading cards. With the dowsing, what we did was made use of a lecture hall, and a couple of people hid a bottle of water in the room. Then, one by one, we invited people into the room and handed them the dowsing rods, asking them to go and find the water. When it came to my go, I remember being handed the rods and just thinking, it's over there, thinking about a window ledge about a third of the way down the room. Immediately, the dowsing rod swung into place, pointing that way. I went over, reached behind the curtain, and pulled out a bottle of water. Now, immediately, I discount the rods, because of the idiomotor effect. They likely were just following what my brain had already thought. Trickier to explain is why... In a room of chairs, desks, ledges, bags, all sorts of hiding places, my brain immediately and correctly decided it's on that window ledge behind the curtain. With the cards, where you have to name the image that appears on a card being looked at by someone else, when you yourself cannot see the card, When we did this with the members, on paper, I was laughably bad at this. Worse than chance, and just randomly guessing. However, what the two people applying the test noticed was that whilst I got pretty much every card wrong, on a much higher incidence than chance, the next card drawn from the deck was the image i just named. With regards to the actual ghost hunts at locations, we'd done one at the university itself. The university I went to has been around since the 1880s, and being a place for teens and young adults for almost 150 years... It obviously comes with its own legends and mythos about hauntings and experiences. For Halloween, we had some different vigils, seances, walkthroughs of the main original university building. During one of these vigils, we sat in the corridor of the top floor of the building. Most of us were on the floor, but there were a few chairs by the window that some people sat on. As you can imagine, a group of students sat around on the floor became a little snug. I led this session, and I called out for anyone who might be there to make their presence known. When one of the chairs, currently occupied, squeaked as it moved forward a couple of inches, the person sat in the chair let out a short yelp before breaking out into laughter. Now, what I will mention is that these chairs are Eisteddfod chairs, as this is a Welsh university. For those amongst the listeners who aren't aware, 
Eisteddfod's are Welsh cultural competitions, celebrating art and the Welsh language. The chairs themselves may mark winners or particular events. And our grand affairs carved out of very heavy wood. All this is to say they're bloody heavy. They're difficult to move and can take a lot of effort to do so. We were all sat quite close together, but the only person in contact with the chair was the person sat in it. And for them to be able to drag it forward with only their feet would be literally impossible. Following on from this, I thanked them for showing us they were there, but to please be careful with us. We didn't mean them any harm, and we didn't want any either. But if they could continue to manifest or make their presence known, they were more than welcome to do so. What then followed was about ten minutes were, eventually on request, we would get a banging noise down the corridor that seemed to get closer each time along with a sense of growing shadows at the end of the corridor too. Please bear in mind, this was late evening, heading for midnight on Halloween, so the sun had long since set, and as far as we knew, we were the only people in the building. I now live in a house alone, save for my cat. I don't feel like I've had any experiences in a very long time. I don't know whether I grew out of it, got jaded, or just it has less impact in my day-to-day. But I still hold the same interest, and so I listen to your podcast and other similar ones to fill that interest. But I don't know how I would feel if those things from the past began happening again. Anyway, for now, thank you for reading. John. Well, John, thank you so much for your plethora of experiences for Season 2 of Episode 14. I think I speak on behalf of all of our listeners when I say if you could find any information about the blood on the walls we would all be eternally grateful. But aside from the blood-stained walls, there are several things within your experience which really speak to me. I often speak about authenticators, things which shouldn't really feature if a story is an embellishment or a fictional creation. And there is a prime example of that within your email and I'm sure many of you may know what I'm about to say. And it's when you mention both you and your sister sensing whatever was in the house was on the landing. And you state it wasn't like it was chasing you down the landing as you would expect, or chasing you up the stairs again as you would expect. But it was on the ceiling above the bathroom door. Visualising that, for me, sends a chill genuinely down my spine. I can also see perfectly in my mind 
you almost in a Superman position halfway out of your cabin bed and waking in that position. I appreciate you say you didn't feel like you were pulled, for example, but that certainly seems like what took place. Just thinking from a logic and physics point of view, if your arms are already straight out past the headboard, how do you continue moving until it gets to your waist? I truly, truly enjoyed this email, John. Thank you so much. There are so many great things to ponder and think about until we return for episode three. For our Patreons, I'll speak to you again on Sunday for another instalment of Dark Bites. For everyone else, I'll see you on Wednesday for a mini-sode. And until then, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time, right here on your show, The Dark Paranormal.